0: welcome to the church leaders podcast conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day and now podcasting from scenic colorado springs colorado here's your host jason day welcome friends to another exciting episode of the church leaders podcast i had the opportunity to chat with andy stanley this week founding pastor of north point in atlanta now for the past 23 years andy has provided leadership to north point ministries seeing their network of churches grow to over 75 churches worldwide, serving nearly 120,000 people each week. Andy is considered one of the most influential pastors in America, and he's written over 20 books, including his latest, which is entitled Irresistible. On this week's episode, Andy and I discuss why a simple phrase you might be using regularly could be hindering your effectiveness in sharing the gospel. Andy shares why he is not discouraged By the trend we see of people leaving the church and he reveals what we as pastors can do to reach even more people we also talk about the singular focus that jesus gives us in the new covenant and why that is so very important as we minister in today's world these are great insights from a great man of god so let's jump right into my conversation with andy stanley andy it's always a pleasure to have you with us welcome to the church leaders podcast
1: yeah, well, what an honor to be asked, and what an incredibly important audience you have, and I'm just grateful to be a part of both the audience and in this opportunity to, to be on the other side of that, so thank you.
0: Amen, brother. Now, Andy, you are a gifted communicator, and you've written extensively, uh, you've taught, you've shared about the art of communicating well— in fact, many Bible colleges, seminaries, Christian universities, they actually use your books as required reading when it comes to communicating. And and this is one of the things that I've personally admired about you, your emphasis on doing our absolute best when it comes to communicating the hope and the truth of Jesus. And Andy, many years ago, you made some very intentional decisions about the way you communicate specifically about the way you talk about the Bible and sin, repentance, discipleship, even salvation. Um, Can you talk to us a little bit? Why did you make this, this intentional shift?
1: Well, I'm glad we're starting there, Jason, especially with this audience. Yeah, I made this shift about nine years ago. And, um, you know, after uh, 9-11, uh, the, the, with the new atheists, uh, who, you know, the four horsemen are sometimes called, um, wrote their books that were basically dissing religion, not just Christianity, all religion, all religions dangerous. And they went to college campuses, and even though most Christians, or probably most Americans, don't know their names and haven't read their books, they made an extraordinary impact. And one afternoon I was listening um, to one of these gentlemen at a, a university situation, university, context just railing against the bible just i mean and the crowd was going wild you know and he was taking cheap shots and it dawned on me this is all those years ago that the, there's really a fundamental flaw in our modern um, version of christianity because our modern version is not the original version hopefully we can talk about that in a few minutes and his assumption about Christianity is a shared assumption with most Christians. And unfortunately, I think most pastors, teachers, authors have played into this assumption. And so as I listened, I thought, you know what, I am not just going to complain about this. I'm going to take steps to, at least in my own personal ministry and communication, remedy this, or at least attempt to remedy it. So, um, and we can get to what I think that fatal flaw is in just a minute. So what I decided to do is I stopped using specific language. I quit saying the Bible says, the Bible teaches, the Word of God says, the Word of God teaches. When I say that, people think, oh no, he doesn't believe the Bible or teach the Bible. Nothing could be further from the truth. This was not a change in belief for me or theology. This was simply a change in approach to talking about the Bible, because once upon a time, the only way to know what was in the Bible was to pick one up and read it. Those days are long gone, and because of the Internet, Um, And because of the misinformation age, think about this. And every pastor and teacher needs to really think about this. People can find out what else is in the Bible without owning a Bible, picking up a Bible, reading a Bible, or even having access to a Bible because of the Internet. So because of that combined with this religion is dangerous, um, you know, the Bible, the sort of house of cards faith that many Christians um, hold near and dear, I decided to use different language. And so I began quoting authors, which sounds so simple, but it has made a tremendous difference in my ability to connect with unchurch people, de church people, people who are reaching for the door to to leave church. And so instead of saying the Bible says, the Bible teaches, I say Jesus said, John writes, Paul writes, James, the brother of Jesus writes. And I've been doing this for years. I did not announce the change. I just made it. But the results have been um, pretty remarkable. Um, I switched my language to um just from believe to follow obviously this was jesus initial invitation to follow i found many people who've left church are willing to take a step and follow before they believe which of course you know most of jesus first century followers followed before they believed and then <laughs> they unbelieved <laughs> and then they re then they rebelieved right, right. um yeah. because of the resurrection and we'll talk about that in a few minutes as well so yeah i made these changes and uh, again Sometimes I'm misunderstood. I, I don't want to be misunderstood. I have not changed my view of the Scripture one bit, but I have shifted my approach. And I, again, I did this many years ago, and in my book, Irresistible, I finally decided to talk about it. I talked about it a little bit in my book, Deep and Wide, the chapter on double barrel preaching. But uh, this book um, is really my thoughts behind this entire shift I've made. And in the book, I'm, I'm calling on thoughtful Christians and church leaders to consider making this shift with me, not for the sake of my faith or your faith or their faith, but honestly for the faith of the next generation, for the faith of the millennials who are leaving the church like crazy. And we've not done anything. We've not changed our approach. We just keep preaching harder and thinking if we make it more modern or if we dress different or have different music. But none of that is going to make a difference. I think we have to step back into a more first century version of our faith and if we do i think um i think we'll see progress
0: awesome brother that's some some great stuff and and we'll be able to launch into several different things um so but let's start with this um what you just kind of closed with there um this idea of modern christianity versus you know first century christianity yeah yeah let's talk about the differences there
1: well and again i'm so misunderstood when I talk about this, but I'll Jason, I'll trust you and your um, thoughtful audience to hear what I'm saying and not <laughs> try yes. to read the lines. Most of us growing up were handed a Bible and said, this is God's Word. You know, don't set any coffee cups on it. You know, honor God's Word. It's all true. And, of course, we all believe that because an adult told us, an adult <laughs> who probably hadn't read the whole thing, but that's a different story for a different day. <laughs> so, you know, you and I and folks like us, we grew up with extraordinary respect for the Bible. But unfortunately, because of terminology and because of the way we were introduced to the Bible, um, we, like most Christians, assumed that the Bible is therefore the foundation of our faith, and as the Bible goes, so goes our faith. Well, um, that is not true, because as many or probably most of your uh, podcast listeners know, there was no such thing as the Bible until about 350 years after the resurrection. I mean, the, the, the Roman empire had already embraced Christianity as the religion of the empire before um, anybody put took the Jewish scriptures, the old what we call the Old Testament, and the New Testament documents that had been authenticated or accepted as, you know, reliable, and put those together and then called it Tabiblia. Uh, the Bible, F. F. Bruce says, that happened, you know, in the 4th century. My point being, for the first, and this is really important, it's not just semantics, For the first 350 years of Christianity, no preacher or teacher ever said, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. There was no such thing as the Bible. Obviously, there was Scripture and things being recognized as Scripture, but they did not, especially in the first century, build the Christian faith on the back of a text. What drove the early Christians was not a text. Nobody could read. Nobody owned one. What drove first-century Christians was an event. And I'm absolutely convinced that the way forward in a world that is so much different than that world, because now everybody has access access to text, everybody has access, you know, to basically everything and anything, the time has come for us to step back onto a more um, sure footing and a a more, I think, a, a firmer foundation and to build our case for our congregations and for this generation on the event of the resurrection and not the authenticity or the infallibility of a text. And it's not because I don't think the scripture is infallible. I study under under Dr. Norman Geisler. Um, if I were to abandon <laughs> if I were to abandon inerrancy, he would show up on my doorstep. And he he and I have actually talked about this, and he says, Andy, you're absolutely right, but people aren't going to understand. I said, I know, but I I'm, I just feel confident. I mean, I learned this from you, Dr. Geisler. You're the one who taught me the classical apologetic. Method. So um, again, I've been preaching and teaching this way for almost 10 years now. The results have been remarkable. It removes so many obstacles to people, especially people who want to come back to faith and want to come back to church. But the problem is not what we say the Bible says, what they know, what, you know, everything else that's in the Bible that they're not able to contextualize. So the fatal flaw is we have become a faith founded on a book when originally What launched Christianity was not a book. What launched Christianity was an event, the resurrection. Another way of saying it is the Bible did not create Christianity. Christians created the Bible. And then the question is, what created Christians? And we know without a doubt it wasn't the Old Testament. What created Christianity was the first Easter morning when a group of Jesus' followers assumed he would do what most people do, which is, you know, stay dead after he'd been crucified, and they, they met a living Savior, had breakfast with him on the beach, and the church was born. So, you know, the other way I say this sometimes, and it gets me in trouble, but, um, I'm going to keep saying it, that in culture and in the marketplace and in the public square, we have to shift the focus from the Bible to the resurrection, because the resurrection is completely defensible now, just as it was in the first century. And, um, you know, again, put me in a seminary classroom or in a, you know, multi-week seminar, and of course we can defend what we find in the Scriptures. But in the marketplace, in terms of our frontline message, our frontline message has to be what the frontline message was of Peter, Paul, and John, uh, excuse me, of Peter and John in the book of Acts. And that is, you crucified the author of life, and God has raised him from the dead. That's what launched the Church. And I just would love to help recenter our apologetic and recenter the foundation of our faith on the event of the resurrection instead of defending um, the infallibility of the scripture
0: yeah that's beautiful brother and i I think one of the things that we we tend to find is almost people seem to idolize the bible and um, put it in a place like you said that it really really is not uh, meant for the scripture the Scripture's true. It's well, not breathed.
1: Mm-hmm. I think they put it in the place of Jesus, honestly. Right, right. I mean, I don't know any other way of saying it. I, they they talk about the Bible the way we should talk about Jesus. You know, And sequentially and historically, there's no denying the fact that it was Jesus first, the eyewitnesses second, and the documents third. Right. Jesus first, eyewitnesses of the resurrection second, the documents third. And that's not in any way you know dissing or um, you know diminishing the significance of the printed of the ancient text at all I read it every day. but in terms of evangelism, in terms of a culture that sees the Bible as this monolithic book and if any parts of it aren't true, <clears throat> therefore the whole thing isn't true, Christianity can't be trusted. We have to change people's thinking and this create this cause calls for a reeducation and it starts in the pulpit, it starts. Um, with Bible study teachers, it, it starts with authors who shift their terminology again to draw people back to the firm foundation of what happened, not what was written.
0: That's good. So, so let's dig in a little bit here, um, because we're, we're finding ourselves in more and more of a post-Christian world, right? And so, Completely. yeah, we're so, there. so the the reality is um, that if we're trying to do our apologetics from, strictly from Scripture as the the primary piece, the first piece, then we've already kind of lost an audience in the post-Christian world, as opposed to starting with Jesus.
1: You're exactly right, Jason, and I would take it one step further, and I think you would agree, and I think you're inferring this. And this doesn't begin at work and at school and in the neighborhood. This begins in how we talk about our faith in the church, Mm -hmm. because People who sit in our churches emulate and use our language and use our approach. So if we leave them with the impression that as the Bible goes, so goes Christianity, they will find themselves trying to defend the Bible in the public square as opposed to defending the claims of Jesus about himself. And it's the claims of Jesus about himself. That's the whole shoot match. I mean, the Apostle Paul said it better than any of us will ever say it. He said, if there is no resurrection... Our faith is useless. He doesn't say that about anything else, just the resurrection. Right. And so as somebody who became a Christian three or four years after the resurrection um, and was not an eyewitness of that incredible Easter morning, even the Apostle Paul recognized this entire thing hinges on an event, what happened first versus what was written. So in a post-Christian world, I'm telling I mean, you're exactly right. More than ever, we have to step back, I think, on the first first century apologetic of what happened. And that doesn't mean people all have to be apologists. It doesn't mean that churches and pastors need to preach apologetics or teach apologetics. I've never taught apologetics. Just shifting our language, just shifting our language a little bit will help the average Christian understand what the foundation of their faith is. So that when somebody takes a shot at Genesis or there's no archaeological evidence for you know, the migration of the Hebrew people to Canaan, or there can't be a worldwide flood, all these things that are easy to take a shot at in the marketplace, you know, the average Christian, instead of feeling like they've got to defend all that stuff, can simply shrug and say, that's interesting, Um, there's evidence to the contrary, but you know what? My faith doesn't hinge on any of that. My faith hinges on an event in the first century that was documented, you know, the the resurrection of Jesus, and so anyway, it, it sounds like a subtle thing, it's a really, really big thing. And again, my concern isn't me and you and the folks listening to your podcast. My concern is our kids, our grandkids, and the next generation. We have to make this shift for their sake.
0: Right, right. And uh, I, I want to dig in a little more on uh, reaching this this post Christian world in which we find ourselves. People, you know, living in this post Christian world. But but before we jump right in there, um, just to kind of ease into that. Um, Andy, in your latest book, Irresistible, you open with this story, which I love, of a trip that you made to China. Um, you write about an experience where you weren't you weren't preaching at an underground church, you weren't training local pastors, you weren't at an all-night prayer meeting, but you were touring a factory, <laughs> right? And and in the midst yeah. of touring this factory, you had a unique encounter. Um, can you share with us that, that experience there?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, people uh, – if anybody doesn't believe this story, I understand it sounds so unbelievable, but there are three – friends with me that are, are witnesses, but anyway, we toured this factory, after the tour, the uh, American owner of this factory asked if there were, anybody had any questions, and it was me and my son, a friend of mine and his son, David Wills, who uh, maybe some of your podcast listeners know from the National Christian Foundation, and there was a young Chinese woman, probably in her mid-twenties, who had toured with us because she was had just worked her way into management, and this owner simply wanted her to shadow us to learn how to give a tour. So he said, does anyone have any questions? And and she raised her hand to ask a question, which was unusual. And she said, I have a question. And she said, Pastor, and there's more to the story, but I'm going to skip to the essence of it. You have to get the book to, to hear the most, really the most amazing part of the story. But she said, Pastor, talking to me, she said, why doesn't everyone in America go to church? Why doesn't everyone in America go to church? And I had no, I didn't know how to answer the question. She went on to tell her story. She was a relatively new believer. She'd been a Christian about two years. There are no churches within walking distance. She had to take a bus. It took her two hours. Um, It was actually a part of a network church, an underground church. And so here's a a young Chinese millennial who was essentially saying, I would be at church every time the door was open, if there was a door to open, and if I could get there. Pastor, why doesn't everybody in America go to church? Well, that that question has bothered me ever since. And the, the you know the short answer to the question of why don't why doesn't everybody in America go to church is because most Americans have been to church, and yeah. they decided not to go back. The more complex answer is because fewer and fewer people. In fact, statistically, all the research, Pew, Barna, everybody agrees. The bottom line is fewer and fewer people, and here's the word believe. They say at the end of the day. I just don't believe that anymore. And what preachers and teachers and church leaders and thoughtful Christians have to figure out, and this is why I wrote Irresistible, is what is it that they don't believe? And what we discover is what they stopped believing in most instances isn't even an essential to being a follower of Jesus. Because, again, we have created this version of Christianity that assumes that it being that I have to believe the entire Bible, everything in the Bible, and everything the Bible was—everything, um, the, the, the way the Bible was taught to me. And so when they begin to unbelieve or misbelieve or disbelieve anything, they basically say, you know what, I don't believe it anymore. And so, again, this is, this is the fault of preachers and teachers and pastors because we've laid a faulty foundation to faith. We said the foundation of our faith— is an errorless book, but that is not the foundation of our faith if that was the case, there weren't any Christians until the fourth century when the book was created. So um, you know why doesn't everybody in America go to church? I think we it's not that the gospel isn't the problem. I mean as Christians we have the most extraordinary story to tell right. but I'm afraid we have um, we've we've cluttered up that story and we we've, we've put unnecessary obstacles in people's way. so that's that's the um that's that question um really drove me to write
0: this book Andy, that's awesome now as you said we hear a lot about uh, a number of people leaving the church stepping away from the church but but you have shared that you're not overly discouraged by this trend no and, and can you can you help us understand why why is that so
1: yeah i'm not discouraged because <laughs> because once upon a time a handful of uneducated Jewish people sandwiched between the temple and an empire not only survived, but think about this, Jason, this is amazing. As we sit here talking today, Jerusalem is filled with Christian tourists, and Rome is filled with Christian crosses. Mm -hmm. Now, when you think about that, there's only one question that begs to be asked, and the question is not what was written. The question that begs to be asked is what happened how is it that a Jewish carpenter or day laborer from Nazareth who was crucified by Rome and who was delivered to Rome by his own people, how is it that two-thirds of the world's population today claim him to be divine or Savior? The question that begs to be asked is, what happened? And Christians have an extraordinary answer to the question, what happened? And it doesn't depend on on authenticating the entire Bible, or proving that the entire Bible is true, our story is much easier to tell. And I just want to help thoughtful Christians and church leaders tell that story better, because when people hear the story, they lean in, because it's undeniable, and it's extraordinary. So I'm not discouraged, but I am going to spend hopefully the rest of my life trying to get this message across. And it's not new with me. It's not original with me. I think it's the original story. We just got a little bit sidetracked for reasons maybe we can discuss later or people can read um, in my book, Irresistible, so.
0: That's good, Andy. Now, as we said, we have tens of thousands of pastors listening in right now, and really the big concern so many have is, uh, you know, they're saying, you know, in, in my city today, how can my church most effectively reach people for Jesus? right? So, can you share with us a few things, kind of along these lines? Um, How do you get people to come back to church? Um, How do you get people to experience church for the very first time? And how do you keep people from leaving church in the first place so you don't have to worry about them coming Mm -hmm. back?
1: Well, this is a little bit different topic, but it's something I love to talk about. In fact, I spent all last fall traveling around the country doing my deep and wide tour, talking about these very things. That's why I wrote the the book, Deep and Wide, in terms of methodology. But part of it is, um, again, uh, Pew just came out with a study not too long ago about— actually, it might have been a different organization— about why Christians don't share their faith. And one of the reasons Christians don't share their faith, one of the reasons Christians don't invite people to church, um, is because their version of faith is so indefensible, and it's so difficult, and it's so complex, when actually our message is so extremely simple— that it's, it, it's you know, it's easy to defend. So again, I don't think we've prepared people with a first century version of the gospel, so it's complicated to talk about. And I'll tell you what my approach is that I, I model for and I teach our people all the time. My marketplace answer, and remember, this is the marketplace answer. My marketplace answer or explanation of Christianity is this simple. Follow, here's what, my this is what I say. I've discovered that following Jesus has made me, has made my life better and has made me better at life. Mm. I've discovered that following Jesus, not believing, following Jesus, has made my life better, and has made me better at life. It's made me a better father. It's made me a better friend. It's made me a better husband. It's made me more generous, and it's it's that simple. So. I think that pastors and leaders have to give people phrases, they have to give them words, and they have to give them phrases and words that drive to the issue of Jesus and not trying to defend <laughs> everything in the Bible in the marketplace. And then secondly, churches have to create environments that are easy for people to invite their friends to, and this is something I've you know, dedicated my life to for the past you know, now 23 years at North Point and the churches that we've planted, creating churches, unchurched people love to attend. I love what James said in Acts 15 at the end of the Jerusalem Council. He said, let's not make it difficult for those who are turning to God. And that, that verse hangs in all of our offices. It's in my offices. We have it painted on the walls. That are, those are our marching orders as a New Testament church. Let's not make it difficult. Paul said the only obstacle, there's two obstacles. Or there's one obstacle. It's Christ and Him crucified. The Gentiles thought it was ridiculous. The Jews thought it was offensive. He said, but if there's going to be an obstacle, there should only be one. It shouldn't be how we treat people. It shouldn't be the reputation of Christians. It should be Christ and Him crucified. And I think that churches who are, that are willing to rethink, re engineer, redo, um, they're going to figure this out. And because of your audience, let me just say one other thing. Yeah. If you will organize around reaching the next generation and not keeping the current one, if you will organize around, budget around, build around, preach, teach, and sing around reaching the next generation instead of keeping the current one, your church will do better. You will find people more excited because I'm convinced, you know, great churches, there's three things about any great church. It's people who love Jesus. It's people who love like Jesus, and it's a group of people that have a plan for inspiring the next generation to love like Jesus. And if you don't have an emphasis on the next generation, you're going to end up preaching to the choir, you're going to get cynical, you're going to get critical, and you're going to get jealous. And so churches should always be about the next generation, not the current one. That's what keeps us leaning forward, that's what helps us keep our hands wide open, and that's what's going to ultimately motivate us, to your point, Jason, to speak differently about our faith because we live in a post-Christian um, culture. And post-Christians are not out there somewhere. They are in our middle school ministries, our high school ministries, and our college ministries. And so, again, this isn't, hey, you know, you're leaving the church parking lot and now you're entering the mission field. No. They are with you. They are, <laughs> they are in your
0: church yeah and, and that's so important because as you said this is happening now this post-christian culture yeah. is present yeah. today so if yeah. if you're waiting and that's why you're focused on the next generation i mean those just go hand in hand because this is happening in front of us and we want to focus on the next generation so we need to understand how do we really truly minister to the post-Christian world. And one of the things that you write about in your book, Irresistible, is this idea of of love, you know, just the, the faith that is grounded in love, um, that yeah. our faith is expressed through love. And that was that was the core of Jesus um, in all that he did was through love. So how, how do we take that into account, especially in the world in which we live, where it's so divisive? You know what i mean and some people are concerned about well if if you love too much then you might be condoning certain things or you know or you know all all those conversations
1: well i'm glad you asked that question in irresistible i spent a great deal of time talking about the new covenant and the fact that and you know in his final meeting with his disciples his apostles he established a new covenant or he predicted the new covenant that would be established in his blood and then just like Moses on Mount Sinai when he established a covenant between God and the nation of Israel, came down from the mountain with 613 commands, Jesus says to his men that night in the room, okay, this is a new covenant, and like every covenant, there are stipulations, and here is the not 613 and not 10. Here is the one commandment. You are to love one another not as you want to be loved and not as you have been loved. You are to love one another the way that I have loved you. This would be the governing ethic for the Jesus movement, the one commandment. There are no (laughs) loopholes. There are no workarounds. And Jason, what's amazing is that night when he said that, all they had to think back on was how Jesus had loved them personally for those three years. But the next day, Jesus would put on a demonstration of love that would take their breath away and his breath away, and they would never be the same. And after the resurrection, they got it. They got it. They understood that they were to wash one another's feet. They understood what it meant to love and to pray for their enemies. And so the thing that should be the characteristic and the hallmark of Christians— is this not, I'm to love the way I want to be loved. It's, I am to love the way that God through Christ has loved me. And so Jesus said it, and we all know this verse, but I don't know why we can't just make this our marching orders. And I think you alluded to it. We're afraid of where we think it will lead. But Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if... And think of all the different things he could have put there. (laughs) But he said, if you love one another in other words it's how you love that will distinguish you as my follower and i do understand jason and you're exactly right people are like oh it's going to get too mushy and it's going to allow for this and it's going to allow for that i completely disagree because once i decide that if it's not good for him, it's a sin, or it's not good for her, I'm going to defer. I just like to make it rhyme for communication's sake, but essentially (laughs) anything that's not good for another person is a sin. I don't need a verse. In fact, this is better than a verse, because instinctively... We know when we're acting selfishly. We know when we're taking advantage of another person. We know when we're in it for us. We know when we're not being generous. And Jesus removed all the loopholes, all the wiggle room, and he says, what does love require of you? Now, you go do that in my name, and people will know that you're my followers. And if that could be the hallmark, and if that would be the governing ethic, it is not mushy, it's not soft, and it is not easy. In fact, it's simpler, but it is a lot, it requires a lot more of us because nothing requires more of a person than sacrificial love. Again, Jesus taught us this, you know, there's no greater love, a man has no greater love than to lay down his life for a friend. So we do not need to be afraid of that. We need to charge toward it. We need to fully embrace it. And if we do, as every person listening to this podcast knows, when people are confronted with that kind of unconditional love, It is so attractive that no matter what you believe and no matter how hard you resist, you walk away impressed, you walk away thinking there should be—I wish there were more people like that in the world, and secretly, I wish I was more like that person. So I don't think we need to be afraid. I think we need to lean in. Now, an irresistible—and I wish every church leader would read at least this one section of my book—I make—I build a strong case for the fact that all— Testament imperatives that we find after the Gospels, that all the New Testament imperatives are simply applications of Jesus' new covenant command to love as I have loved you. The Apostle Paul wasn't coming up with new rules and new laws. It was essentially, this is what this looks like for marriage. This is what that command looks like for children. This is what that command looks like for slaves and masters. And that's why he ties his imperatives not to the old testament or the old covenant he ties his imperative to just as in christ god loved you and just as in christ you know forgive one another just as you've been forgiven so that's a big part of the book and it's an important part of our message and i think unfortunately it's gotten a little lost because again of the way that we were presented with the bible as children and the way that we've talked about the bible for generations
0: yeah that that is so good brother and andy we we did not even scratch the surface of all that you touch upon in your latest book, Irresistible, Reclaiming the New that Jesus Unleashed for the World. And this book is so good. You know, you dig into, as you touched on right there, uh, the Old Testament principles versus New Testament promises, which was super yep. informative, yep. great stuff. You know, how how our faith is expressed through love. You open up Paul's letters um, to the early church and how he viewed the old covenant and uh, how that played into um, the understanding of the new covenant through, through Christ and the ethic that you just spoke about so much more in this book really want to encourage everyone to to take a look at it irresistible um but before we go brother you've got the ears of pastors and ministry leaders right now is there anything else that you'd like to share with them before we before we take off
1: absolutely if ministry is hard you are doing it correctly (laughs) it's what i mean what god has called us to do is difficult i'm a preacher's kid um, you know, I watch my dad, he's 85 years old, and he just, we just have the greatest conversations. And you know what? If you do this right, it's going to be hard. And if you do this right, a lot of people aren't going to like it. But if you do this right, there's nothing greater in the world than serving people in the name of our Savior. It's just the greatest, most rewarding life in the world. And as I think about, um, you know, I have great friends that are in the marketplace and are business leaders and do all kinds of things. And I, I think about what I get to do and what I get to spend my time doing as a pastor, whether it's funerals or weddings or staff meetings or building buildings or trying to figure out the kinds of things we've talked about. What a privilege it is to serve the Lord. And so, you know, I just want to say, repeat the words that we've all preached and taught and prayed a thousand times. Your labor is not in vain. Your labor is not in vain. No matter where you serve, no matter how big, no matter how small, no matter how successful, no matter how well-known or not known you are, our labor is not in vain. And this life is so short. It is so short. So to get to give our little bitty short lives to something with eternal value, what an extraordinary, extraordinary privilege it is.
0: So be encouraged. Amen, brother. Love that. Love that. Thank you so much for being with us, Andy. We certainly appreciate hearing your heart and, uh, we will have links to Andy's newest book, Irresistible, in the show notes, and I encourage you guys to check that out. So thanks again, brother.
1: Thank you, Jason. What an honor. It's all and the privilege is mine. Thank you.
0: I appreciate you taking the time to be with us on this week's episode. Every week as we are putting the episodes together, we're thinking of you, our pastors and ministry leaders, and striving to provide insightful and inspiring interviews as you seek to grow as a kingdom leader. So we hope you're finding value from the Church Leaders Podcast, and if so, we'd certainly appreciate you taking a few moments to head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Your positive reviews and ratings help other church leaders more easily find our podcasts so they too can benefit from these interviews. Again, we thank you in advance, and if you have any comments, any questions, suggestions, or ideas for guests, I would love to hear from you. You can send me an email to podcast at churchleaders.com, or you can connect with me on Twitter, Finally, you can find this podcast as well as other great faith-based podcasts on the Faith Play app. It's available for both Apple and Android, and so we encourage you to check that out as well. So until next time, this is Jason Day, encouraging you to love well and lead well. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.